This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for this question and answer session. I get a number of questions from folks throughout the ecosystem and have decided to start addressing these on the program. So today we will address questions including, Nick, I recently reviewed a great startup, but I'm not going to pursue because of the terms. Our lawyer requires a convertible note has a path to equity in all scenarios. This startup's note does not. This stance makes sense to me, but I see so many other angels invest in this type of note that it makes me wonder if the stance is justified. I would be interested in your opinion. The next question was, I will be matriculating for my MBA this fall, and I'd like to get into venture capital. It has been suggested to me to do investment banking first and use that experience to get into VC. Do you think that's good advice? The next question was, Nick, I have an interview in a couple weeks with a VC fund. What type of modeling do you think I should be ready for? The following question was, Nick, I'm interested in beginning conversations with investors for my SaaS EdTech startup. Do you know anyone in EdTech that you could introduce me to? Okay, the next question is, how have you found the startup deal flow to be on AngelList? I'd like to back your syndicate, but I'm not sure about the quality of the startups you're getting from AngelList. And the next question was, Nick, we are in the process of hiring for an analyst role someone with zero to three years of experience and a love of the startup world. The role will focus on supporting our portfolio. If you have any strong candidates, please feel free to refer them to me this week. We are going to be closing the top of the funnel shortly, but welcome your referrals. And the final question I'll be addressing is, I just received a formal offer from a startup. They are still an LLC, so they are offering LLC grants rather than equity options. I am Googling the implication of these grants as we speak, but I figured it would be a good idea to ask you how these differ from equity options and what I should look out for. Okay, stay tuned for the answers to those questions in this episode of Q&A. Dave from a family office in the Midwest asked the following question. Nick, I recently reviewed a great startup, but I am not going to pursue it because of the terms. Our lawyer requires that a convertible note has a path to equity in all scenarios. This startup's note does not, and this stance makes sense to me. But I see so many other angels invest in this type of note that it makes me wonder if this stance is justified. I would be interested in your opinion. And my answer. Interesting, Dave. In theory, a path to equity in all scenarios makes sense. Doing a term sheet instead of a convertible note tends to make sense, too. But we are in an industry where convertibles reign and the terms can be highly variable. 
Just thinking out loud, there are a few common trigger scenarios with convertibles. Number one, a subsequent financing. The company raises a subsequent funding round and early investors convert. Number two, an acquisition or change of control. The company gets acquired and note holders either get paid back their investment, a liquidation preference, or a multiple equal to the delta between the cap and the exit price. Or number three, the time elapses. The company does not raise a subsequent round, the time elapses, and the note reaches maturity. At this point, the startup is required to pay back the note with interest. I'd suspect your situation relates to number three, meaning the note for this startup does not automatically convert upon maturity. This only tends to happen when the startup fails, and I've never been in a scenario where the startup chose to pay back the original investment. It would be very unusual for a startup to reach meaningful profitability where they'd be able to return the investment. Typically, if a note reaches maturity before the startup has raised a subsequent round, the investor has the upper hand. The startup is required to pay the note back so the investor can then dictate terms, setting a more aggressive equity conversion price. But again, this typically happens when things aren't going well. This whole investment class is really about playing for the upside. Protecting the downside is a nice-to-have, but investing in the best companies is the must-have. If, however, your situation relates to number two, i.e. there is not a path to equity in the event of an acquisition or change of control, I find that this is common with a convertible. I've seen a number of notes that do not have a liquidation preference tied to a change of control. Clearly, this is not preferred for the investor. Some of the best wins are for those startups that have a quick exit, And I do believe that early investors should be rewarded for taking the risk even when an early exit occurs. But this isn't always the case, and sometimes it's just better to get into the best deals. That being the case, most often you just have to roll with whatever terms the lead investor has set. Okay, moving on to the next question from Sam, an aspiring practitioner in Florida. Sam asks, Nick, I will be matriculating for my MBA this fall, and I'd like to get into venture capital. It has been suggested to me to do investment banking first and use that experience to get into VC. Do you think that's good advice? Well, there's no traditional path to getting into venture capital, and it's a highly competitive area to get into. Having solid translatable skill sets may help you get an interview, but will not help you get a job. Resume builders, including a top-tier MBA, working at a top investment bank or strategy consulting firm, or working as an early employee for a hot tech company are all what I would refer to as credibility flags. They may earn you an interview, but they won't win you a job. My advice to young folks is always to pursue things that you are very interested in, and if those lend themselves well to VC, great. Subsequently, if you change your mind about VC or find it's too difficult to break in, the good news is you are doing something you love. In the next Q&A item, I will talk a little bit more about the factors that have helped individuals get a job, but the single most significant thing you can offer is tremendous value. You want the hiring VC to feel that they would be missing out on a -a one-of-a-kind candidate if they don't hire you. How can you achieve that? Be special. Get involved. Demonstrate your interest in VC with action. What side projects have you done to build your knowledge of venture? Do you create content? and or maintain a blog with your thoughts? Have you networked with startups in the ecosystem? Most VCs need two things, a competitive advantage in sourcing deals 
and a competitive advantage in closing deals. How does your effort and ability help them move the needle on both? The next question from Stephen in Chicago. Stephen asks, I have an interview in a couple weeks with a VC fund. What type of modeling do you think I should be ready for? Well, Stephen, as of July of 2016, I've now spoken with 23 people that have reached out to me to thank me after getting a job in VC. Here are the main notes and takeaways from these discussions. The first bullet is that the podcast was very helpful, namely the best practices episodes. Point two, many have said that the VC had them sit through a pitch session. Then they debriefed and got their feedback. It seems like a familiarity with pitches and quickly analyzing companies is necessary. Point three is that being able to estimate TAM in an existing or nascent market is critical. VCs only want to invest in massive markets. Point four was that some have created their own market thesis, which has led to a job. For example, a young woman sent me her deck with a thesis on natural language processing within AI. She included an investment strategy, drivers, comps in the space, and details on the exit environment. She had basically pitched the firm on why they needed to hire her to go deep on natural language processing and had built the supporting market info to justify it. I found out later that she got a job at Bessemer. The next point was that overall, some have compared the interview process to a strategy case interview for companies like McKinsey or BCG, for companies like McKinsey or BCG, with a focus on assessing early market opportunity. The next point was that many have said that they have become very proficient at asking good questions about the VC's thesis, partner structure, diligence process, differentiation, fund structure, deal flow sourcing, and key lessons from wins and losses. Asking intelligent questions demonstrates a solid knowledge of VC success factors. That's all I've got for now as far as key takeaways and notes from those that have contacted me about getting a job in VC. The next question was from Sarah, an entrepreneur in Ann Arbor. She asks, Nick, I'm interested in beginning conversations with investors for my SaaS EdTech startup. Do you know anyone in EdTech that you could introduce me to? I've known Sarah for a while, and she is an incredible startup entrepreneur. So in these cases, I would be happy to make some intros if I know the entrepreneur. And off the top of my head, I know a handful of EdTech investors. What I encourage Sarah to do is to find a few startups that she admires in EdTech and or SaaS, search for them in Crunchbase, and build a list of investors that invested in them. I asked her then to feel free to send me this list and any other generalist investors that she came across. I am happy to look over the list and tell her who I know. And if she gives me a strong, concise elevator pitch on the startup, I can then pass this along to investors and see who is open to an intro. The next question was from John, an angel investor in Nashville. John asked, How have you found the startup deal flow to be on AngelList? I'd like to back your syndicate, but I'm not sure about the quality of the startups you're getting from AngelList. This question has come up again and again. There seems to be some confusion about AngelList. Back on episode four with Howard Tolman, he compared AngelList to the Yellow Pages, essentially a directory of startups. It's changed quite a bit since then and is now a place where many early stage companies get funded. But there still is a misconception that AngelList startups are the ones being funded. 
The perception is that AngelList recruits startups to their platform and then matches them with investors. This couldn't be further from the truth. While it is possible to find startups through the site, we are not identifying startups through AngelList. We are just using the platform to facilitate and syndicate our deals. In essence, I don't need to use their technology platform to syndicate my deals across an array of angels, but it is much cheaper and more efficient to do it this way. For angels that are interested in seeing our deal flow, I can direct them to the site where they can easily back the syndicate. No stacks of paperwork to review and sign if it's all done through the platform. Also, the administrative costs in the SPV LLC organization is really cheap at 8K per deal. Most angel groups I've spoken with spend far more than this per deal. And maybe the best feature is that I don't have to herd cats for their checks. Every account transfer or wire transfer is handled directly through the platform. I've heard from many offline angel group leaders how frustrating it is to get a dollar commitment from members and then have to chase down the funds to make the close date on time. For these reasons, I'm actually consulting two of the largest angel groups in the country right now on how they can migrate their process to AngelList. It's cheaper and much easier to do deals, but there are still a number of nuances to learn and do it effectively, which is why their leadership has reached out to me. And while entrepreneurs and angels think that this is far too public a way to raise capital, The reality is that the majority of deals syndicated on AngelList are private. They are not publicly listed, and deal information is by invite only. From the angel groups I've spoken with, their plan is to keep all of their deals private. So back to the original question. This is not just a deal flow platform where I'm leading deals for startups that are listed. Rather, I find deals through a variety of channels, and if we decide to move forward, I have those startups create their profile on AngelList, I write the investment thesis, we decide to keep it public or private, and then we launch the deal to our backers. After sending this response to John, he followed up by asking if I back other people's syndicates. And my answer was absolutely. While the deal flow quality that we're seeing now is higher than ever, and we are able to get very selective, the reality is that I still don't get access to all the best deals. If Samil Shah gets an allocation in an exceptional startup, am I going to pass? Of course not. He's in a different geography, has some different focus areas, and is going to see a different set of deal flow than I do. The single hardest thing about this entire asset class is getting access to the best deals. If he gets a 200K allocation in a great startup and gives me an opportunity to put 5K into it, he's giving me access to a deal that I would never have a chance to get otherwise. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. 
And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Okay, the next question was from Paul. Uh, Paul is on the leadership team of one of the largest VCs in the Midwest. And Paul asked, Nick, we are in the process of hiring for an analyst role, someone with zero to three years of experience and a love of the startup world. The role will focus on supporting our portfolio. If you have any strong candidates, please feel free to refer them to me this week. We are going to be closing the top of the funnel shortly, but welcome your referrals. For this request, I did link Paul up with three young, talented individuals that were interested in VC analyst roles. And these were all candidates that I felt would make great contributions to their efforts. I was able to assess that because I had gotten to know each of these three individuals very well. One of the candidates I had worked with professionally in the past. The other two I've worked with on small projects. They wanted to get involved and offered to contribute to some projects for TFR and Newstack. Over the past couple of years, I've had many people desire to get involved, reach out to me, but the majority of them flaked out when they had to do any real work. But not everyone. There have been a handful of individuals that have shown exceptional drive and capability. It is these folks that I have no trouble recommending for a job. The reason I tell you this is that I receive a lot of emails and resumes from people that I don't know, either asking for a job at Newstack or asking me to recommend them for VC jobs. And I can imagine how many of these emails the larger firms must receive. While it may seem obvious, here's some advice. No one will recommend you for a job if they don't know you. I'm not going to put my reputation on the line for someone I've never met, especially someone that does not have the wherewithal to get to know me before they ask for my help. So if you're planning to send me your resume, please don't. If you really want to roll up your sleeves and get involved in venture, let's talk. Okay, and then the final question for today's Q&A was from Ted in Chicago. Ted asked, Nick, I just received a formal offer from a startup. They are still an LLC, so they are offering LLC grants rather than equity options. I'm Googling the implications of these grants as we speak, but I figured it would be a good idea to ask you how these differ from equity options and what I should look out for. In all honesty, I had to defer to an expert on this one. Uh, I did not know the answer, but fortunately, I connected with my buddy, Sean, who has great experience dealing with these things. His reply was that there are a variety of different ways that companies grant options in an LLC. So unfortunately, I need more information. But things to look out for are that if these are true options in capital interest or profit interest of the entity, and also at what price. Some LLCs offer instead phantom equity in the LLC instead of real equity. Okay, so that will wrap up this installment of the Q&A session. If you're enjoying the full ratchet, it would be a huge help to me 
if you'd press the pause button and leave me a five-star review right now on iTunes. I can only continue to do the show as long as it's being supported by the audience out there. And if you've listened, then I'd really appreciate if you'd leave me a review. I think I only have 50-some-odd reviews at this point, and I know that there are many thousands of you out there listening. So please press pause on your podcast app right now. If you're using the the standard podcast app on iOS, uh, just press pause and then go to one of the bottom links that says search. Press the search button, then type in the full ratchet. That will bring you to the main full ratchet page within the podcast app where there should be a button that says write a review. If you could do that for me really quick, that would be a huge help to the show, a huge help to me, and it would help others find the show. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this Q&A session. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon.